Well, we are uh, in our series called The Seven, What Christ Wants for His Church. Uh, this is uh, a series that we're, we're in week three on, and this is the week that I was dreading because I walk around a lot when I preach and there's fire behind me. <laughs> so it could get exciting. I don't know where the closest uh, fire extinguisher is and Don Dyke's not here. So, John, it's all on you. You've got to jump out and put it out. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. And as you're turning, uh, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, verses 8 through 11 this morning. This is what the Spirit says through the Apostle John. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, for the opportunity to be here without persecution, to meet freely, to fellowship, to greet, to learn more from you and about you. Lord, we we ask this morning that you would teach us new things from a passage we may be familiar with. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, I pray that your word would convict us and that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. God, we don't want to just know more. We want to know and apply and become more like Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that this morning. We have no power to do that without you. So we ask for your spirit to be here among us. Move as you will, spirit. Speak to us. Show us what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Saeed Abedini is an American pastor and he is currently in an Iranian prison because of his past involvement in church planting movements in his native Iran. He was arrested in September 2012 while in Iran overseeing an orphanage he helped start. A letter from Saeed to his family was smuggled out of the infamously brutal Evan prison. In it, he details his abuse at the hand of his captors. He has had little sleep because of the amount of pain he is in. And he cannot even recognize himself in the mirror due to the beatings and torture he has endured. He wrote that a nurse who was supposed to treat injured inmates told him, In our religion, we are not supposed to touch you. You are unclean. Christians are unclean. He explained, They would not give me the pain medication that they would give other prisoners because I was unclean. He writes of the pain he feels knowing family is being interrogated in Iran and his wife and his children are alone without him in the U.S. However, he also wrote of the importance of forgiveness, even to the point of forgiving the interrogators who beat him and the doctors who refused to treat him. One of his interrogators has come to respect Saeed because Saeed told him to his face that he forgives him. He concluded his letter by quoting the Song of Solomon, Love is strong as death, and Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's current. You can go to SaveSaeed.com. You can sign a petition. The petitions have worked so far. The UN made a resolution. Uh, 
Um, the European Council has made a resolution. Um, it has gone to Secretary Kerry, and he has begun to look into the situation, asking for the release of an American citizen. Um, but this is our brother. Saeed is a pastor. I believe he lives in Montana, and he is in prison in Iran. And so we ought to pray for our brother. But this is nothing new. Um, this is actually kind of par for the course as far as Christian history goes. There are always those who are persecuted and are suffering and are in trials and tribulation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Polycarp was 86 years old, about 1900 years ago. He had learned the gospel at the feet of the Apostle John. He'd been the pastor of the church in Smyrna for around 60 years. And when he heard Roman officials were intent on arresting him, he decided to wait for them at home. Panic-stricken friends pleaded with him to flee So to calm them, he finally agreed to withdraw to a small estate outside of town. But while in prayer there, he received some sort of vision. Whatever he saw or heard, we don't know. He simply reported to his friends that he now understood, I must be burnt alive. Roman soldiers eventually discovered Polycarp's whereabouts and came to his door. When his friends urged him to run out the back, Polycarp replied, God's will be done, and let the soldiers in. Tradition has it that he even fed them dinner. He was escorted to the local proconsul, Statius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. In fact, he carried on witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. He'd be thrown to wild beasts. He'd be burned at the stake, and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts but a little while, the fires of judgment, reserved for the ungodly, he slightly added, cannot be quenched. Polycarp concluded, but why do you delay? Come, do what you will. Soldiers then grabbed him to nail him to a stake, but Polycarp stopped him and said these amazing words, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre unmoved without the security you desire from nails. He prayed aloud, the fire was lit, and his flesh was consumed. Stories like these are not meant to make us despair of our weak faith, but rather to be strengthened and encouraged to seek God for more faith. One of the the men back in the centuries who wrote about this said, We love the martyrs, but the Son of God is who we worship. It is impossible for us to worship any other. This morning I want us to pay attention to what we see in this passage. Jesus promises those who remain faithful that he will remain faithful as well in tribulation. We're going to see the basis for fearless faith in the attributes of Jesus, his love for his church, and his caring warning to them, and his promised reward for endurance. So let's look into this passage. We have the second of the seven churches that are addressed by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. This is the church at Smyrna. You'll see on the screen behind me the seven churches Hopefully you can see them. Some of them are small. In uh, red writing is where the seven churches are. This is modern day Turkey. Uh, It would have been called Asia Minor or just Asia at the time that uh, Revelation was written. You'll see Smyrna right here, about 35 miles north of Ephesus, which we studied last week. Uh, Likely what happened is John was writing from the island of Patmos and he was able to send messengers that started at Ephesus and roughly made their way in a circle around the Laodicea. So as we study these seven churches, um, the church, each church would have received the entire letter of Revelation, and I want to show you that in a little bit. But this is the church 
um, that we're studying this morning. Smyrna is the only city that has survived the entire time since the Apostle John. Many of the other cities were destroyed and abandoned. If you go to Ephesus, there is a nearby city, uh, but it is a, a little ways away and the city of Ephesus lies in ruins. Uh, Smyrna, however, has been a city constantly throughout all of that time and so there's not as much archaeological evidence because it's all buried under apartment buildings and businesses and restaurants. Um, there's not as much, uh, there's not as many temples and as many streets that we can unearth as, as we saw last week in Ephesus. You'll see here, here's the modern city with a port in the background. It is a, a very important port city. Um, Izmir is what it is called in Turkey. In the modern day, it has about two and a half million people. So it's the second or third largest city in Turkey. It's a big deal. Uh, you can see here, this is a little bit of what they've dug up, but as you can tell, it's right in the middle of the rest of the modern city. So um, just imagine living in these places around the world where uh, you walk from your modern apartment, looking on your iPhone, and walk by a city that's 2,000 years old or older, buried in the ground next to your apartment complex. Uh, just a, a different way of, of looking at things. Um, here's just a picture of some of the things. You can tell they haven't done a lot of excavation because there are piles of things. <laughs> Here are um, some stones from architectural fragments. In the back, you can kind of see some of the pillars that they've tried to, to put back together and kind of give a sense of a street that ran down um, ancient Smyrna. But really, there's not much else to see uh, in the city of Smyrna because it is such a large city. And we're going to take a look at Smyrna. If you'll get your notes out, and, and we'll uh, do a little bit of background here. Um, you'll see your first blank there. Smyrna was a revived city. And this will prove important as we look at, at the passage. But Smyrna was a revived city. Um, it had been destroyed in 600 B.C. and just kind of laid there until 290 B.C. Um, when the Greeks decided to rebuild the city. It's a, it's a natural location to build a city. There's a river that leads down from the mountains straight into the port of the Aegean Sea. Um, it's also a long narrow port, so it's easily defensible. So this is why it was just a, an ideal location and became a big city and a prominent city, as you'll see in the next point. Smyrna was a prominent port city. Uh, that meant that it had ships coming in and out. It was part of the regular trade. Um, they had a lot of fertile land in the area, so their biggest trade item were their crops that they would load onto boats and send in and out. This made it a lucrative place to live. There were lots of rich businessmen um, in the city of Smyrna. It was a very prominent city. It claimed to be the hometown of the poet Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, that's been disputed by some, um, but, you know, 2,600 years later, everyone wants to have a famous person from their city, so they continue to argue for that. It was a center of learning, science, and medicine. Um, it was also a remarkably beautiful city. It also contained the largest theater in all of Asia. Last week, we saw pictures of Ephesus' theater, and that was smaller than Smyrna. Smyrna's was massive, built into the side of a hill. Unfortunately, the side of that hill now contains... You guessed it, <laughs> apartment complexes. <laughs> so that theater is either non-existent or buried underground still. Next, Smyrna was intensely loyal to Rome. They were intensely loyal to Rome. The Roman statesman Cicero called Smyrna the city of our most faithful and most ancient allies. And that also is important for our passage this morning because of the closeness between uh, Rome and Smyrna. It became the center of Caesar worship possibly for the entire empire, when it won the right to build a temple to the emperor Tiberius in 26 AD, 
right around when a man named John the Baptizer was getting started in the wilderness in an out-of-the-way country called Israel. They also built the first uh, temple to Rome, or Roma, the goddess of the city of Rome. And so really, Smyrna um, loved Rome. They worshipped Rome itself. They worshipped the emperors of Rome. Um, some other things that they worshipped in town were they had a temple to, to Zeus. They had a temple to their local deity, Cybele. Um, and they worshipped her as almost an incarnation of their city. So they worshipped Rome, and they worshipped themselves, and they worshipped Zeus, and there were some other um, gods that they had built minor temples to as well. So paganism dominated um, this increasing loyalty to the empire of Rome dominated in this city. Last, Smyrna had a large Jewish population. So when the Jews were um, dispersed from Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Judah at the end of the 7th century BC, the Jews were scattered across um, the ancient Mediterranean. And as the years went by, they prospered in certain cities like Babylon and in Alexandria and Egypt and even some parts of Greece and um, Turkey. And so the Jews had actually settled here in large quantities. In fact, there are a lot of synagogues in Smyrna to this day. Um, the Jews are not as welcomed in Turkey, especially in the last decade. Um, so many have left, but there are still lots of synagogues there as a testament to the Jewish population throughout the centuries at Smyrna. Around the time that the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, uh, the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, had made a declaration where they officially split themselves, by definition, from the Christians. Up until this time, the Christians had kind of, had kind of been under like a subset of Judaism. And the Roman Empire had given Judaism a little bit of leeway. They were not required to worship the emperors like almost every other place on the planet was. They were allowed to just offer sacrifices in honor of the emperor, not to worship him. And so the Christians kind of were under the Jewish umbrella. But um, as the century went on, the Jews more and more were antagonistic, as we see in the life of Paul in the book of Acts, to Christianity and wanted to officially state, these Christians are, have no part of us. We, we, they're not Jews. They're not, they tried to separate themselves. So that was happening right around the time that John wrote this book. In fact, a lot of Roman persecution under the emperor Domitian at this time was Jewish instigated. So we have evidence that the Jews went to the Roman officials and almost ratted out the Christians, some of whom met in their synagogues or nearby or had become Christians out of Judaism and had connections with the Jewish population. So a lot of Roman persecution was actually Jewish instigated. It may well have been, one commentator said, that Smyrna was the most dangerous place in the Roman Empire for Christians. Now, that's speculation based on the evidence, but it may have been just that way. So that's the background of Smyrna. That helps us understand what's going on with these people who are receiving a letter from the Apostle John, who some of them may have known. In fact, it's possible that Polycarp, the one that I, I read to you about, who was... Um, burnt at the stake in 155 AD, may have been in the beginning years of his pastorate at Smyrna. And we know that the Apostle John actually taught Polycarp um, personally. Um, so this is the context that we find ourselves in, in Smyrna, as we study this passage. So every letter in this, in this uh, first two chapters, well, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, has a basic structure. There's a little bit of variation, we'll even see some of that today. But 
they're very form letters here that deal specifically with the churches. And so we'll, we'll see that. And every week as we study, we'll kind of point out those different things that are the same or similar in all the letters. So why don't you look at your notes. The first thing we're going to look at are the characteristics of Christ. Because this is a letter that John wrote, but Jesus appeared, as we saw in chapter 1, to John on the Isle of Patmos and said, write these things to the seven churches of Asia. And so Jesus is, in essence, through John, saying, church at Smyrna, this is what I say to you. So this is more than, this is more than um, uh, Paul, who's relating his letter to the churches that he's been to. Still, same level of inspiration and inerrancy that we believe in. Um, but Jesus himself is writing in the first person through John. And here's what he says in verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. And in every letter, Jesus identifies himself with a certain characteristic. And almost every time, those characteristics point back to the end of chapter 1. So look back on your page or flip a page back. Look at chapter 1, verse 17. This is when Jesus appeared to John. John falls on his face as though dead. And Jesus lays his right hand on it and says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. Verse 18. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. So from that description of how Jesus talked to John, John then takes that and puts it into the letters. So Jesus takes from there and says, The words of the first and the last. Well, that's what we want to look at first under characteristics of Christ. He is the first and the last. Are your blanks there? He is the first and the last. I want you to flip over the book of Isaiah and see that John is most likely taking this from the Old Testament. In fact, in the book of Revelation, there are more allusions to and borrowings from the Old Testament than in any other book of the New Testament. And yet there are almost no straight quotes So John is so familiar with the Old Testament that as he writes, Old Testament just comes into it because that's what he knows. And so it it bleeds into every page, every chapter. Sometimes verses consecutively uh, come from the Old Testament. So go to the book of Isaiah. Look at chapter 44. Isaiah 44. We, We looked at this passage several times in our last series on the attributes of God. There's so much here. But Isaiah 44 Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Flip over a few pages to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am He. I am the first, and I am the last. And so it seems um, fairly clear that John is borrowing, taking from Isaiah, and writing that here in the book of Revelation. Uh, Again, Jesus, through John, um, doing this. He says, I am the first and the last. Well, what's important about that? Well, several things. Um, It's it's basically synonymous with with what we saw in chapter 1 when God the Father says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. And then Jesus will say that in Revelation 22, in the last chapter in the Bible, he'll say the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. They're synonymous. So what's Jesus doing? Well, he's claiming divinity. He's calling himself God. Uh, And this is what we believe as Christians. We believe that Jesus Christ is God. 
He is fully man and fully God at the same time. How does that work? I don't know, but that is what the Bible clearly teaches, and we revel in that because the God-man is the one who sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. It also indicates his sovereignty over history. If he's the first and he's the last, then everything else happens in between there. And so it indicates that, that, that Jesus is sovereign over all of history. Listen, nothing is out of control in this world. We hear that on the news, we see that on the news a lot, but nothing is out of control. Because God stands over all of history. He is sovereign. He is in control. One of the commentators said, Neither time nor things within time pose any limitation upon him. Jesus is not limited by things going on. He does not look down from heaven and see things going on on earth and, Oh no! What's happening? That's not the God we serve. That's not a God I would want to serve, would you? Why would you pray to that God? who's shocked and amazed and surprised by things going on on earth. Now, Jesus is the first and the last. More than that, next, he died but is alive. And it's very interesting that he says it in this way. So Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, basically claiming to be God, and then he says he died. Does anyone have a problem with that? The ancients would have had a massive problem with that. The gods don't die. They're gods. Um, now, there are a few myths that, that, that kind of play with, with death for gods, but for the most part, gods don't die. Especially gods that just said they're the first and the last. The first and the last, the eternal one, says, who died and came to life. This is what we saw back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that Jesus says this as well. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, this would have been confusing to people in the ancient world when Christians would have talked of Jesus this way. How could this be that the eternal one died? Don't we sing of that in our hymns and in our songs? That thou, my God, wouldst die for me? What an incredible announcement that God has become man, Emmanuel, God with us, and has died in our place for our sin. But he didn't just die, because that's a bad story. The best story is that he died and he's now alive. He came back to life. Praise the Lord. That's what we'll celebrate extensively next week. We cancel Sunday school. We extend the service. Why? So we can sing more, so we can hear more, so we can see baptisms that all point to the death and the resurrection of our Lord. He's not dead. Our God is not dead. He lives on account of his resurrection. So this is who Jesus is. He starts the letter saying, this is who I am, which is very important. Because the people that would have heard this letter read in their church would first be confronted with who Jesus is before they are confronted with what he has to say to them. Does that make sense? That's very important. Who are you? Okay, now I will receive what you're telling me. It's a lot easier to receive something from someone who identifies who they are. So if we have a guest speaker that comes on a Sunday morning, we don't just send the guest speaker up and they start speaking. Who, who is this person? Why are they talking? Why did they get, who gave them a microphone? What's going on? Well, we, we introduce them. We identify who this person is. And oftentimes we'll give qualifications. Okay, we'll say, um, this person is the pastor of such and such a church, or this person is a professor of such and such a, a university and they, 
hinting that they have a PhD. Okay, right? we, we try to give qualifications for the preacher, for someone who is standing in front of us. And so Jesus identifies himself, gives his qualifications, and then begins to speak to the church in verse 9. And so we see um, the commendation, the commendation of Jesus to the church at Smyrna. And it starts, just like all the other ones start, I know. See verse 9? I know. And this word in Greek can just mean, you know, to know a fact, but it also can mean to know intimately, to know details. And so Jesus says, I know. And that's really, really important because we'll find out as this church is suffering tribulation, what could be more encouraging than the the Jesus who is the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega, knows. What does he know? He knows what they're going through. He identifies himself and then tells them that he knows what they're going through this reminded me of a of a critical passage in the history of the scriptures and go back to the book of exodus exodus chapter 2 again it's not a direct quote from the old testament but it it definitely um, sounds similar it, it sounds like this may have been what jesus is is trying to reflect from the old testament so exodus chapter 2 um, if you've been in church for any length of time you know the story um, joseph was able to bring his brothers and his father and their family down to Egypt. They lived there, but over the course of 400 years, they fall into slavery under Pharaoh. And that's where we get um, the inspiration for so many movies and for one of the great stories in the Bible. But at the end of chapter 2, the children of Israel cry out because of their slavery, because of their abuse, because of their affliction. And these are the words that it says in verse 24. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Here's the key phrase. God saw the people of Israel. And that's not it. And God, what? And he knew. He knew. Now, that's not to say God, like, figured it out. Oh, there they are. Oh, now he knows. No, the point there is to say that he knows because this is his people. He's intimately involved with them. In fact, just before that, it mentions the covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so they're his covenant people that he has chosen from all the rest of the peoples on earth and placed his special love upon them. God saw the people of Israel and knew. Revelation 2, verse 9, Jesus sees the church at Smyrna and he knows. And Christian, Jesus sees your life and he knows. He knows. He's intimately acquainted with what you're going through. He's intimately acquainted with what you need. That's so encouraging and so helpful. And we'll see that here as he says what he knows. Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So your second point, their bullet point there is tribulation. Jesus knows their tribulation. And this word in Greek is an intense word. It's not merely suffering or affliction. It is intense persecution, severe tribulation. Jesus knows that this is going on. So we find out from the church at Smyrna that they are enduring tribulation. It is a hard time to be a Christian at the church in Smyrna. This might be a little hard for us to connect with. We, no one, you weren't afraid of anything coming to church today, except for if you were speeding, you might have been afraid of the cops. But that was a good fear. We were not afraid to gather here this morning. 
um, the worship team and the sound team were here early on getting things set up. There was, there was no one standing guard outside of the church like there are in many places in the world, especially Nigeria right now, uh, where any, any Sunday, um, any church in certain regions of Nigeria fears a suicide bomber. Um, fears a truck driving through their church doors and blowing up the church. That's happened multiple times in the last year. So how do we identify with that? Um, you, you had to look through a closet this morning and had all kinds of options of clothes to wear, didn't you not? You, you could have put anything on. You had all kinds of things. You, you ate, most of you, hopefully, ate some kind of breakfast. Or you at least had a refrigerator stocked with food that you could eat for breakfast. Um, this is, this is hard for us to do. So I think the first thing we ought to feel here is we ought to identify with and pray for our brothers and sisters who don't go to church on Sunday morning like this. Who gather in forests and caves and in homes and can't sing out loud. They don't have a sound system. They couldn't have a sound system because it would give them away. We also ought to not assume that for the rest of our lives we won't be under persecution. Whether in America or whether God calls you to go overseas. Uh, we need people from from Western countries who have money and support to go to places where they might not come back alive because the gospel going to those people is that important. Tribulation is not enough to make us flee. Sometimes it will be depending on the circumstance, but we don't just flee because of tribulation. That's 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 seen in all of Christian history. There have always been those courageous in Christ who will stay in the midst of plague, in the midst of persecution, after their family has been murdered. So we identify with other churches around the world, and then we don't assume that we will always have the freedoms that we have. We want to live now, ready for what might come. We pray that it won't. We vote that it won't. We do these things. But we ought to be prepared. The next thing is poverty. Poverty. These Christians... They're, they were poor. They were poor physically. Um, but really, Jesus says in parentheses here, but you are rich, which is very interesting because as we get to the last church, Laodicea, he says, you're rich, but you're actually poor. So the church of Laodicea and the church of Smyrna are, are opposites. So he points out their, their poverty, and, and a lot assume, and, and have some good, good church history to back this up, is that they might have been poor because of the tribulation. So Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and the poverty might stem from the tribulation. This might mean that they were, um, the businesses that they ran were not visited because others passed around word that these were Christians, don't go to their business. Um, business owners in this room, think about what would happen if your clients started to pass around the word that you were unreliable, that you were a liar, that you were immoral. These things all happened to the early Christians. In fact, we know that they were accused of all kinds of things. Early Christians were accused of being cannibalistic. Why? Because they partook in the body of Christ. What do they drink at communion? The wine. What does it symbolize? Blood. You hear things and you twist them. Um, They also knew that the Christians were very close. They called each other family. They called each other brothers and sisters. And so oftentimes they were accused of being incestuous. No basis in reality, but this is what the early church had to deal with. Um, There were lots of other things. In fact, the uh, early church talked about fire, the Holy Spirit coming on as fire. They talked about being passionate. They used the fire of judgments. They talked about all the fire passages in the Old, Old Testament and the New Testament. And a lot of people began to call them arsonists. 
In fact, in fact, Nero blamed the Christians on the fire in Rome that very likely he started. And it made sense to a lot of these pagans because they heard all this talk of fire from the Christians and assumed that they were arsonists. Or at the very least, pyromaniacs. So this, this is possibly what caused their poverty. But Jesus says, you're actually rich. So what does he mean? Well, he means the same thing for us. Um, we are wealthy. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top 1% uh, of the world as far as wealth goes. You are making good money. Now, it might not seem like that for some of us. However, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about our, our wealth and another thing. And the Old Testament says that our father owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's our father. He owns them. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, Paul says that we inherit all things. What's your inheritance, Christian? All things. You inherit all things. In Galatians, Paul says that we will inherit the world. So what do you get in the will? Well, the Christian gets in the will the world. That's your inheritance. Okay? Forget your parents' house and whatever life insurance they've got left. You've got an inheritance of the entire world. That's what God will give to those who believe. We are rich. We are wealthy. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us that Jesus became poor. Why? That we might become rich. Now that is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel issue. Um, that is not what these bogus, false preachers say, that you ought to be healthy and wealthy in this world because of what the Bible says. They've not read it well enough. The Bible never promises health and wealth. The, pro- the Bible does promise spiritual wealth. It does promise things to come. Sometimes those things come in this world. They do. And sometimes they're reserved for the world to come, where we will reign with Christ and sit on his throne with him. The last thing that Jesus knows is their slander. Uh, this word in Greek is the same word for blasphemy. Um, but it seems like a better translation would be slander because they're, they're, they're blaspheming um, the Christians in Smyrna. So there's a little distinction there. When we talk of blasphemy, we talk about it being against God. We talk of slander, we talk about it being against people. So again, some of the early church examples would be these things that they're accused of. Cannibalism, uh, lust and immorality. They were accused of breaking up homes because they would become Christians and, and be kicked out of their home or leave the home. They were described as atheists because they only believed in one God and so one God wasn't enough. And so they were called atheists. They were accused in that way. Uh, they were accused of being politically disloyal. Uh, and they also were, in, were accused, of, like I said, of being arsonists. So the slander, these lying things, um, are all kind of c- connected here. The poverty and the slander stem out of the tribulation. Uh, two interesting phrases here um, in verse 9. Jews and are not. Those who say that they are Jews and are not. Now, this is not an anti-Semitic phrase, okay? That's been, this has been said. Listen, folks, John was Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. Do you realize that? He still is Jewish. The risen, resurrected Savior who sits at the right hand of the Father is a Jewish man. He's not anti-Semitic. Paul was not either. You see in Romans 9 that Paul would have given up his own salvation if possible, if it meant salvation for his, his countrymen. What this is saying is what I talked about earlier, is that Judaism had become openly hostile to Christianity. 
Um, Jewish, Jewish agitation also led to Roman persecution in the life of Paul, as we see in the book of Acts. It happened in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and in Thessalonica, at the very least. And then the Jews hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans end up chopping off his head. So that, that's what's going on, is the Jews are, are turning against the Christians. Um, what, what they're saying is, um, Jesus actually being the most Jewish of all Jews, um, is trying to point out their betrayal of what it truly means to be a Jew. What does it truly mean to be a Jew? It means to be one who's in covenant with the living God. So these Jews had ter- actually turned their back on the living God, and they had, they had started to turn against Christianity. Jesus even says this in John 8, which is one of my favorite passages, so we got to go there. Go to John 8. John chapter 8. You ought to spend some time in John chapter 8 just for your edification. Read it with your family. It is a phenomenal passage. John chapter 8. In an argument with the Jews, the Jewish leaders, who said that Abraham is our father, starting in verse 39, Jesus answers and says, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. That is a stinging rebuke. Stinging rebuke. You are doing the works your father did. Okay, so he just said their father's not Abraham, but now he says they're doing the works that that their father did. So who's the father? They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Maybe they knew of Jesus' background that his mother was a virgin when he was conceived. He said, we have one father, even God. So they up it even from Abraham to God himself. Jesus said to them in verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And here he begins to get to the root of the issue. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And here's the accusation. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus is incredibly bold and tells these, these Jews, they're not, the, they're not the sons of Abraham. These are not even sons of God. They're sons of the devil. He says, your father is the devil. Now, imagine how you would react to that. Someone comes into this church and says, some of you are not sons of God. You're sons of your father, the devil. That'd be incredibly offensive. You probably wouldn't listen to much more of what they had to say. This is what Jesus warned the Jews of, though. It's not anti-Semitism. Jesus is Semitic. He is saying these Jews are not doing what Jews ought to do. Why? Because Jews knew God longer than any other people on earth. They had been covenantally tied together with God. Um, Romans 9, uh, Paul says, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So he's not commenting on their ethnicity. He's commenting on their heart. In Romans 2, Paul also says that a true Jew is one whose heart is circumcised not merely one's body. So Jesus is going to the root of this. He says, these people in Smyrna, they say they're Jews. They're not. And then he he clarifies and says, in fact, they are a synagogue of Satan. Synagogue is very, um, is placed at odds with church here. Synagogue is a gathering place, an assembly. Um, 
But they're saying, instead of assembling and gathering to hear from God, from the law, they're gathering to hear from their father, Satan. This is an incredibly important and stinging accusation. Well, that leads us into the next portion. You'll notice on your notes, there's no criticism. This is one of the two churches that Jesus has nothing bad to say about. He does not criticize anything. Last, last week we saw Ephesus had lost their first love. Smyrna, he just goes straight to the command and the warning in verse 10. So number one, he says, the first thing he says is do not fear. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And there's an extra emphasis in Greek. So it means do not fear anyone. Never fear. It, it's a strong language. He says, you're going to be, you're going to suffer. He warns them ahead of time. So there's no, there, there's no sugarcoating here. This is not in particularly great news. He says, you're going to suffer. And then he expands on that. He said, behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days will have tribulation. Now there's, there's all kinds of debate about several things in this verse. One is the 10 days. Does it mean 10 literal days? I found six or seven different interpretations of what this might mean. My answer is, I don't know. I think the main point here is that Jesus tells them they're going to be thrown in the prison and he knows how long they'll be there. See, Jesus is sovereign even over their being thrown in prison. Some say it's symbolic for a short period of time. They point back to Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who went 10 days without eating the king's meat. Um, there's some relation there. Um, some would just say it's a literal 10 days. They'll be in prison for 10 days and then they'll get out. Um, regardless, Jesus knows how long they'll be there. Again, Jesus knows. He knows. Um, so many things we could say here, but, but Jesus says not to fear, not to fear man. In Matthew 10, he says, don't fear man. He says, rather, you ought to fear God. You ought to fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So if our fear is rightly of God, then we have no need to fear man. We sang of that this morning. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a rhetorical question because we know the answer is nobody. That's the point of the question. No one. Psalm 118, 6 through 9 says this, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. He says, don't fear. He gives them something that they could be fearful of, but he tells them not to fear. Some say that, it says the devil is going to throw them in prison, that you may be tested, that there's a question about, is this God testing them or is this Satan testing them? And again, I would say, um, the specifics there are not as important as knowing that whether or not Satan's doing it, we know from the book of Job, Satan's not doing it without getting permission from God. So it might be Satan's action, but it is God's intention. God stands behind even Satan. The second thing he says in the end of verse two is be at verse ten is be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, he is saying that they need to stay faithful. This is a theme that runs throughout the book of Revelation: endurance, endurance. Because on the whole, if you've read Revelation, it's not a lot of of you know angels and unicorns and like lots of nice cloudy things. It's 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 like bad stuff happening. There's blood and there's and there's guts and there's flies and there's plagues and there's asteroids and there's explosions 
That's a lot of what's going on. So on the surface of it, not a lot of good news. But the message of the book of Revelation is endure to the end. Be faithful to the end. Prove your faithfulness. Show your endurance. This is where we get the phrase perseverance of the saints. It comes from the book of Revelation. One author said, One's willingness to give his life is the ultimate proof of his loyalty as a Christian disciple. Folks, all of us would love to say that we're willing to die for Christ. We all would say, I would die for him. If you would die for him, will you also live for him? Live for him until you die for him. (laughs) Don't just be lazy until it's time to die for him. Live for him and then die for him. Do it all together. Jesus says in Matthew in Mark 8, 34-36, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his murder instrument, a cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Folks, if Saeed Abedini is executed in Iran, his life will have been saved by losing it. Because he counted the gospel and the, and the plan of God more important than his own life, God will save him from that he may die but as we'll see in the next verse he won't really die so let's get to the conqueror's promise in verse 11 it actually borrows from the end of verse 10 but the first thing there is the crown of life jesus says he'll give the crown of life well what's the big deal there well this is not like gold glitzy crown okay this is not go go to london and see the crown jewels this is a laurel wreath this is a victor's crown. Two different words. If your name's Stephen or Stephanie or something like that, this is where your word comes, this is where your name comes from. Stephanus. Crown. And it doesn't refer to the nice goldy point one. It refers to the laurel wreath that a Roman emperor would wear. Why would he wear it? Because he's victorious over his, em- his empire. He rules. It also would be given to an athlete who won at the Olympic Games. There would be a laurel wreath. Now, let, let's think about this. If you got a laurel wreath on Friday, by the next Friday, it doesn't look like too much of a crown, right? I mean, it's, it's starting to wither. Unless you can find some crazy way of keeping it in water on your head, it's going to wither and die. And so it is a symbolic of what it stands for. What that, what that wreath, that crown stands for is victory. So he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You will earn your victory over death by being faithful to me. That is what is promised. Um, Paul, James, Peter also use this in their writings. Um, it, it is a very important thing in the New Testament. The crown's value lay not in itself, but what it symbolized. Second, they're spared the second death. Spared the second death. This is in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says, notice, to the churches. So he writes specifically to Smyrna, but this applies to God's churches, and I believe it applies to our churches today. He goes away from church at Smyrna to churches. All churches need to hear this. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Second death is a mysterious phrase. What does it mean? Well, we go to the end of the book of Revelation, and John finally explains it. So we'll end here. Chapters 20 and 21. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 20 and 21. At the end of the age, here at the end of the thousand years, the millennium, chapter 20, verse 6, John breaks into praise and says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Over at the end of chapter 20, verse 14, 
The books are open. The judgment is happening. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. What is the second death? It is eternal damnation apart from the presence of God. You'll notice that he does not promise the Smyrnans, Smyrnians, he does not promise them rescue from the first death. There is no promise of rescue from the first death. Folks, if you didn't notice, the death rate is 100%. Besides Enoch and Elijah, they get a pass. But other than that, so it's 99.9999999%. You're going to die. Unless Jesus comes back, you will die. You might die today in a car accident. You might die at the age of 105 in a nursing home. You're going to die. And in fact, um, in the Middle Ages, Christian scholars kept a skull on their desk, not because they were morbid or gothic, because they wanted to be reminded that they are temporary. You will die. But there's a second and a worse death. And Jesus promises rescue from the second death. Folks, this is our story. This is especially what we want to emphasize next week at Easter. You don't have to die the second death. God has provided a way out. You don't have to go to hell. Do you understand? You deserve to. I deserve to. But you don't have to go there. God has provided a way in Jesus Christ, who in verse 8 was shown to be the first and the last, the one who died and is now alive. Praise the Lord. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the hope of the Christian. So what does Christ want from his church? Look at the bottom of your notes. You'll see what we studied last week in Ephesus. For sake of time, I'll just read Smyrna. Christ wants a church that remains completely faithful to him, even in the face of trials, ridicule, and persecution. Village Bible Church, will we remain completely faithful to the first and the last, the one who has died and the one who is now alive? That is our calling. We're to remain faithful, which is not easy. We must work hard at this, but great phrase, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. That means he gives grace for us to get along with each other. He gives grace for us to serve each other and to love those outside of these walls. He gives us the grace to do those things. So why don't we pray to that, that one, the God-man who was dead and is now alive, the first and the last. Father, we thank you for this day. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. We trust you. We trust you that you will preserve us from the second death. We trust you that you will give us the crown of life because you died the death that we should have died on the cross, in our place, for our sins, suffering God's wrath on sin in your own body on the tree so that we wouldn't have to. What good news. So Jesus, this morning, we pray that you would invade lives, break hard hearts, replace them with hearts of flesh that beat only for you. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do your work that the Father and the Son sent you to do. We thank you for your comfort in our lives, for your conviction in our lives. And now, Lord, um, open our eyes to apply this passage this week, that we might be faithful in the workplace, in the home, in the grocery store, at school, in our neighborhoods, wherever we are, that we would be faithful unto death and that that might mean we would live for you and share this wonderful news that all need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen.